This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Anna Fishzon, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Bruce Fink once again, this time about his brand new book, A Clinical Introduction to Freud, Techniques for Everyday Practice, uh, from Norton 2017. So just, just for... Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host... Anna Fishzon, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Bruce Fink once again, this time about his brand new book, A Clinical Introduction to Freud, Techniques for Everyday Practice, uh, from Norton 2017. So just, just released. Uh, Bruce, welcome back. Thank you, Anna, and it's uh, such a pleasure and an honor for me to uh, be invited back again by you. Oh, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure for me to introduce you for a third time. Um, Bruce Fink is a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor who trained at the École de la Cause Freudienne in Paris. He is the author of numerous books on Lacan, including The Lacanian Subject, Between Language and Jouissance, A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian Psychoanalysis, Theory and Technique, Lacan to the Letter, Reading a Crete Closely, Fundamentals of Psychoanalytic Technique, a Lacanian Approach for Practitioners, uh, Against Understanding, Volumes 1 and 2, about which I have interviewed uh, Bruce on this very podcast, and more recently, Lacan on Love, an Exploration of Lacan's Seminar 8, Transference. He's, um, he's also translated several books of, uh, several of Lacan's works into English, including a Cree, of course, the first complete edition in English, um, Seminar 20, Encore, and Seminar 8, Transference. And also, finally, in his spare time, he's written several mysteries, one of these days we'll talk about those, involving a character loosely based on Lacan. Uh, but, but anyway, today we will be talking about Freudian technique. So, um, Bruce, I, I'm compelled to ask you the most, the obvious question first, I guess. Uh, what prompted y- your return to Freud? Uh, why did you decide to write a book on Freudian technique, specifically after writing so much, you know, on Lacanian technique? Um, for me, I guess it's not so much a return to Freud. Uh, Freud is where it all started, and it's where it all started for me, too. I was uh, quite familiar with Freud's work before I discovered Lacan, and uh, it's, of course, what allowed me to get a first handle on Lacan. Um, 
And as you're aware, I'm sure, Lacan himself, um, throughout his life and all the way to the end, said, you know, he was a Freudian. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a certain amount of um, rhetoric, perhaps, involved in that statement. But um, the idea is that, you know, he was uh, first and foremost a Freudian and certainly for uh, probably the first decade of his teaching, Every year he took a Freudian text and um, and worked it over and worked it over in his seminar. Um, and so, you know, he began as one of the closest readers of Freud's work at his time, and certainly in France, where uh, Freud's work was not very quickly translated, often very badly translated, and um, often... Uh, sort of stepped over or whatever the term is, um, sort mm-hmm. of skipped by analysts at, um, of his time uh, because they would read summaries of it, um, often by English-speaking authors. Um, so um, for me, Freud is uh, where it all begins, and it's also the basis of uh, Lacan's work, um, you know, his work on dreams, his work on slips of the tongue, on everything that he calls unconscious formations all grows directly out of Freud's work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, uh, um, uh, in my teaching that I did for 20 years at Duquesne University, I often taught an undergraduate and a graduate class on Freud. And um, I thought there was um, a lot of good material in there that uh, would be worth bringing out because my sense is that today... Um, uh, many people are not that familiar with Freud's work, even in psychoanalytic institutes. Uh, it's obviously true in psychology programs because Freud is often given very short shrift. Um, textbooks that people read, um, you know, will have a, one chapter, if you're lucky, on Freud and often a very superficial reading of Freud. Mm. And uh, so it seemed to me that... Um, both for students and for practitioners, um, a book that focused on Freud and not on Freud at what a horrible person he was or how uh, did he really help his patients or not and, um, um, you know, is his theory somehow uh, outmoded? Um, mm. But to really talk about the the techniques that he introduced um, uh, that uh, are still useful to us as clinicians uh, today, uh, it seemed to me that that was worth um, um, uh, going into. Mm-hmm. So, um, actually, so what what is the... This is, you know, because you've written so much on Lacan, I'm, again, I, I feel compelled to ask, what do you think is the biggest difference between classical Freudian and Lacanian technique? I mean, besides, of course, the uh, variable length sessions, um, is, there, is there a big difference really between Freudian and Lacanian approaches uh, to transference, for example, or, or interpretation yeah, I think there is a very big difference, and it's. Uh, but it's. Uh, I think it's best to see it in a kind of historical uh, perspective. Um, if we talk about interpretation, first of all, mm-hmm. um, uh, Freud very early on in his work thought that it was enough for him to 
think that he had discovered what was unconscious in his patient uh, and bring it to the patient's attention in a very direct, uh, not uh, not ambiguous uh, communication. Mm-hmm. And so he would say, well, you're doing this because uh, you're in love with your mother and you hate your father. And he found very quickly that such interpretations didn't have any effect anymore. In fact, his patients would come to him, you know, some of them had begun to read his work very early on, and they'd say, I'm here because of my Oedipus complex. And uh, and these kind of banal... uh, interpretations, but not even just banal interpretations, any interpretation that conveyed a piece of knowledge that the analyst thought he or she had come up with to the patient turned out not really to have the desired effect. Or uh, we could look at it historically and say it stopped having the desired effect starting at some point. Lacan tries to situate this around the 1920s. Um, mm for example. But Freud himself says uh, already in his papers on technique that there is knowledge and then there is knowledge, that there's a kind of knowledge that uh, can be explicitly articulated and then there's a kind of knowledge that you feel in your bones and that actually has to come from the patient, uh, him or herself. If it comes from the analyst, it remains a kind of foreign external thing and um, So I think what Lacan's approach was, was not to hand interpretations over to um, the analysis, but rather to try to prod and encourage the analysis to come up with the interpretations him or herself. And this makes analysis a longer process. I think Freud was very impatient. He wanted um, his analyses to gallop along and, um, you know, given the work that he did early on as a neurologist and so on, he was used to treatments not taking more than a few weeks and Mm. even a few months. In the case of Dory, you may recall, he sort of apologizes to his (laughs) audience that he wasn't able to completely, you know, come to a resolution of the case in three months. Um, um, But even later on in his work, and you can read this in certain... um, accounts that people have given of their analyses with Freud, it was clear that he really wanted uh, things to move ahead quickly, and he felt the best way to do that was to do the interpreting for the patient, and well, if the patient didn't accept the interpretation, the patient was resisting. Um, I think Lacan's approach was really, it just doesn't do that much good to uh, try to hand over some sort of uh, consciously formulated and articulated knowledge to the patient. Um, the patient has to formulate things herself, and that's what has the most impact on the patient. Mm. So uh, that's where Lacan then sort of veers off into something which I think um, uh, a lot of people find uh, curious, um, if not problematic, which is this notion of oracular interpretation where it's not that the analyst does nothing, but that when the analyst speaks, the uh, what is said is not terribly clear or can be in, interpreted in a couple of different ways. And that puts the analysis to work and it puts the analysis unconscious to work trying to 
with the hope that what you've said resonates somehow, that you've picked certain ambiguous phrases or phraseology from the patient's own discourse, repeated it in a certain way, such that the patient begins to wonder, I wonder what the heck that means. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily what the analyst means by that, that could be part of it, but insofar, especially as it's um, a phrase that was taken directly, perhaps, from the analyzant's own speech, um, uh, you know, I wonder what I meant by that. Right, right. Right, right. Yeah, so the oracular portion is really, I think, Lacan's exclusively, because, you know, you could attribute to Freud this other, I mean, what he said and what he did were not necessarily the same thing, but he did eventually come to the the conclusion right. that you had to kind of interpret when the, you only interpreted when the analyzand was very close, when it was on the tip of the tongue or just a little right. bit. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And, and, and transference, would you just... Indulge me for a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I've yeah. I've written, as I know you're aware, I've written yeah. quite extensively on this in fundamentals of psychoanalytic technique. Um, but again, I would look at a kind of historical perspective about transference. Uh, again, I think that Freud believed that. First of all, Freud said that you only interpret the transference when it's become an obstacle to the progress of the analytic work, mm-hmm. which you can see is already worlds apart from what is done today, where you know the use of the transference is um, is rampant and is um, uh, is encouraged uh, almost to the uh, exclusion of all else at times by certain uh, analysts. Yes. Um, so for Freud, uh, first of all, you only interpreted the the transference when uh, it became an obstacle. Um, and what I think uh, Lacan added was that interpreting the transference actually doesn't get you out of the transference. I think that Freud believed for a long time, perhaps uh, right up till the end, that you could get yourself out of some nasty transference situations by bringing to the analyzant's attention the fact that a transference was taking place that, you know, let's say um, the analyzant thought the analyst was being seductive and the analyst might say, just like your father was, and um, um, I think Freud thought that that would somehow liquidate the transference, as he put it, or it would um, attenuate the transference at that particular moment in time and make the patient's demands or anger or whatever it might be uh, dissipate. And um, what Lacan points out, and, and there's quite a bit of evidence for this um, that came from unexpected quarters, is that when you interpret the transference, you very often get yourself in deeper somehow into it, that you don't, um, you you somehow make it worse. So, Mm -hmm. for example, um, the very fact that you make a comment that, um, you know, uh, let's say the patient thinks you're being seductive, just like somebody in the family, might actually be taken as a seductive remark itself. Right, that you're trying right. to seduce me with your knowledge, and uh, when uh, someone says oh, you you feel that I'm being critical toward you, just like your mother was, um, 
uh, there are many cases in which the patient feels that you're being critical of them with that very remark, right? Stop doing it mm-hmm, seems to mm-hmm. be the way they take the message. And this, um, this was, um, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, Gill's books, uh, two volumes called The Analysis of Transference, there's mm-hmm. a ton of, um, there are uh, quite a few uh, transcripts in there which indicate that when uh, the therapist whose work was uh, followed in the course of that book and transcribed and presented, um, many times when they gave transference interpretations, the transference actually bogged down and got worse rather than uh, um, what was supposed to happen happening. So what was supposed to happen was that uh, by interpreting the transference, you and your analysand both step momentarily into your observing ego mode instead of from your participating ego mode. And you're supposed to both somehow step into a meta position outside of the nasty uh, emotions involved in the transference where you both become irrational, reasonable, mm. logical beings. <laughs> and, and then you can discuss this and then the other stuff goes away. The nasty emotional stuff goes away doesn't seem to really happen um, and there may be uh, certain occasions where something like that happens a little bit but in general um, there's no way of stepping outside of the transference and Lacan even said um, quite explicitly in his own cryptic vocabulary he said there's no transference of the transference <laughs> and by that he meant right you you don't get out of the transference um, you're in it up to your ears basically, uh, regardless of what you do. And so his focus became um, not working with the transference explicitly, um, but working with all the other tools at our disposal. Mm. So it's not, can we say that he he worked within it, not interpreting it, but somehow still within it to his advantage? I mean, I don't know, that's that's a bad phrasing, but... uh yeah, I mean, did he take so- he took something from Freud, didn't he? In this, certainly, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly, he um, he thought transference was incredibly important, um, and um, mm-hmm. uh, and he looked at it from a structural perspective. What was going on, such that a particular uh, transference was occurring? He tended, especially in his early work, to uh, refer more to. Um, Freud's earlier vocabulary, which involved transferences, which were um, momentary transferences, not necessarily. Today we tend to talk about transference as right. a kind of global, overall, overall thing that that um, colors the entire analysis. What uh, Lacan focused on, especially in the 1950s, was the kind of momentary transferences that would occur. And his way of talking about it was that uh, that a, a momentary transference would occur, whether it's anger or it's a, um, a more an erotic uh, kind of transference. 
at a moment at which there was a bogging down of the dialectical process of the analysis. So, for example, mm-hmm. when he talked about Freud's work with Dora, he would say it was when Freud didn't see something in particular, when he sort of uh, put his foot in his mouth, or rather, let's say, he, um, he made mistakes in terms of understanding what was going on, that that's when the transference, uh, a particular transference would arise. Mm. And then it would make the situation very complicated and unwieldy. And we know what the result was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. So um, I think Lacan preferred to think in terms of um, uh, uh, momentary um, difficulties in the analysis as opposed to talking about transference as a an overriding um, uh, feature of the analysis. Mm. Um, Mm-hmm. So and certainly didn't uh, seem to give much credence to the way people would talk about uh, someone as having a major mother transference to their analyst, for example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, his, I think his feeling was also when such things occurred, the analyst was really positioning herself incorrectly in the analysis. Hmm. Um, and that if the work was going as it should be, in other words, you know, the patient's history was being uh, elaborated on, uh, dreams were being talked about, fantasies and so on, such a major mother transference shouldn't arise. Um, Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on a little bit. Um, so, th- so there, there's a there's a chapter in the book. I wanted to sort of uh, give a, our audience mm-hmm. an idea about how the book is organized. There's a chapter devoted to studies on hysteria, specifically. Well, I shouldn't say specifically, especially on O. Um, right. Another chapter is on the interpretation of dreams. That's a very long chapter. There's a chapter on the Ratman case and Dora. And then there's there's a chapter on symptoms and a kind of beyond Freud chapter. But um, mm-hmm. so what what was curious as I'm nearing the end of the book, I was think as I was doing that, I was thinking, what about I know the technique papers, Freud's technique papers were mentioned throughout, especially toward mm-hmm. the end. But I was right. just wondering what prompted your particular organization of the book, why you didn't have a book on Freudian techniques, specifically on the technique papers. It was, you know, just a yeah, I was wondering. Right. I think I was tempted to write such a paper, but it's true that there isn't that much, uh, rather, to write such a chapter, there isn't that much unity to the papers on technique. Mm. They um, they really do um, constitute a number of very separate uh, texts on transference, on dream interpretation, um, on the beginning of analytic work and so on. And so I didn't feel that they fell into, um, in any neat way, into a single chapter. There's also the... um, more slippery question, I guess, which is that of um, uh, the contradiction between the way Freud actually practiced, of course, and how he said we should practice. And uh, what's interesting about the papers on technique, of course, is that 
everything he tells us you should do or you shouldn't do, he already tried, uh, often repeatedly, and either failed miserably at it or, you know, came to a resolution that this is what he should do and yet never, doesn't necess- didn't necessarily con- uh, do so in a systematic way thereafter, mm-hmm. according to at least some of the um, first-person accounts that I read of people's work with Freud. So, you know, for example, he would say we shouldn't, um, uh, um, uh, you know, have a kind of chummy relationship, uh, a personal relationship with patients, and we yet, uh, yeah, we shouldn't give them advice, for example, about what to do, and yet we know that he advised certain of his patients to marry so and so as opposed to some other person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, all. He committed every, that, every boundary violation there, except sleeping with the patient, I think, yeah. Uh, right, exactly. And there are probably some who would claim he did that too, but uh, no, not to the best of my knowledge. Um, but um, so, um, uh, yeah, but that, that's a separate issue. And I do mention that at various times in the course of the book that um, that my my general overriding sense is that Freud was a better theoretician than he was a clinician. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps partly owing to never having been analyzed, it was it seems like it was quite hard for him to actually practice what he preached in those papers on technique. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, I, again, in that vein, it, why? Well, I was curious why you didn't include. Um, well, I can guess why you might not have included the Wolfman case because that's he was psychotic, or this is the. Some, according to some, right, and so yeah, sure. it's very complicated. Um, but you, you know, you didn't deal very much with little Hans or 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 Sidney Silak, you know, the the so-called um, young homosexual woman case. Mm-hmm. Why did you? Right. Um, was that a choice right. that you just didn't <laughs> want to write that long a book? Or <laughs> well, the book already got much longer than I was expecting uh-huh. it to, and uh, I think it's the longest one I've ever written at this point. So uh, I did have to make a selection. I think the the little Hans case is not really a case to my mind. I mean, Freud basically saw the boy once and wrote a bunch of letters to the father. Mm-hmm. So to, to my mind, it's sort of, uh, it's not really a psychoanalytic case. It's interesting. There are some fascinating things in it, some useful things for us to learn. But there's nothing for us to learn about analytic technique, it seems to me, because there, there was no analysis that occurred, you know, uh, yeah. A father talking to his son and the son drawing pictures and reporting this then to Freud. Um, you know, um, and, uh, now Lacan wrote, you know, all of Seminar 4 essentially mm-hmm. on that case and it's a fascinating, uh, discussion of it, which itself never seems to really come to any kind of definitive conclusion about mm-hmm. the case. And I think that, again, that's partly because it wasn't really a case, and we don't really even know what happened, in a sense, right? We don't mm-hmm. know what became of the boy. Um, I think Freud came to believe that he turned into, let's say, an ordinary neurotic um, right. w- without any phobic symptoms anymore. Lacan seems to be uh, more doubtful about that and uh, wonders whether or not the boy ended up uh, perverse. Um, but it's anybody's uh, hypo- anybody can you know come up with a hypothesis because we don't know. 
so it's one of those cases where um, I didn't think that would be terribly valuable. The case of the Wolfman is more complicated. Um, I at least hope to talk about a case where I felt Freud had some success. Mm. And again, the Wolfman case, as I mentioned in the book, my sense is that Freud, like um, many even contemporary clinicians, uh, didn't have a separate technique for working with psychotics and did not even necessarily recognize that the Wolfman was psychotic. Right. I think mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, Ruth McBrunswick, with whom he worked afterwards, quite clearly realized that uh, he had had a psychotic break. Uh, Freud could have realized that quite early on, um, based on the hallucination that the the Wolfman told him he had had as a young child. Um, And Freud kept working with him in exactly the same way as he worked with his neurotic patients, looking for the unconscious, trying to bring out the unconscious, um, and uh, playing on double meanings and so on, which to my mind, didn't really do the Wolfman any good. Mm. So, um, and so, you know, the Wolfman is one of those cases which um, is perhaps uh, shameful in the history of psychoanalysis, but it's, it's, you know, it's one of the cases from which we can learn a great deal, I think. Because yeah. I believe even after Ruth McBrunswick, the Wolfman went on to work with somebody else and so on. So there's always the sense that somehow he really wasn't being helped that much. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would say the same about Dora, but um, I think that there were at least certain things that happened in the case of Dora that were positive, and certainly certain things that happened that were positive in the case of Ratman. Again, the case of President Schreiber, the judge, is not really a case either, right? It's, right. Uh, it's based on a book, his autobiography, and... Um, so I tried to stick with something clinical and clinical where I thought there was something useful for us to learn by mm-hmm. uh, by looking at those cases closely. And the case of uh, homosexuality, the uh, young homosexual so-called, that was not really, well, that was very short, but uh, a right, failed, it's very, a failed case, you know. Right, short, failed, um, and I believe that um, at least if we follow Lacan's analysis of it, Freud seems to have made a number of the same mistakes in that case as he made with Dora, and mm-hmm. I think I mentioned that very briefly, perhaps in some footnotes. Yes. Um, but um, Freud seemed to have this problem with um, women who were quite beautiful, especially young women who were quite beautiful, mm-hmm. that he somehow couldn't keep his his eye on the ball <laughs> and uh, tried to explore the unconscious with them, but um, seemed to get caught up in other things and trying to impress them perhaps and uh, to come up with brilliant interpretations and so on, Um, perhaps in the hope of winning their love, which is uh, very problematic from an Mm -hmm. analytic standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay, there's... we can go on this, continue on this path, but I want to like switch it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Uh, what was, um, hmm, this is maybe a, a very big question, but what was for Freud uh, the, the goal of analysis or the end of analysis? And how do you think, was it very different from Lacan 
from Lacan's um, end of analysis? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think you said, did you say ends or end? Uh, it's funny, it, end, end. Uh, or ends, ends, ends. ends is good, though, I think. Uh-huh. I, w- I would take that up uh, because um, it seems to me that Freud's uh, notion of what the end of analysis should look like changed considerably over the course of time and what the goal of analysis was. And I think the same is is true um, uh, to some degree for Lacan. Um, and Lacan explicitly formulated over and over again, you know, he's perhaps the analyst, uh, of course I'm not familiar with all analyst work, but the analyst who seems to have devoted the most time to try to trying to conceptualize what the end of an analysis should look like or what we're trying to achieve. For Freud, very early on, I think very simply, he he said, you know, to the goal of analysis is to make the unconscious conscious. And um I take issue with that. I think that there's um you know, we have some idea what he means about that, but uh, I think what we might say instead is that the goal is to transform the unconscious, that things that were unconscious that were running our lives stop running our lives. Um, we don't necessarily have to know why exactly. We don't necessarily have to know what they were to begin with and uh, why they were running our lives. They just have to stop running our lives. Um, so, and then, um, later on, I'm, I'm sure as you're aware in his, um, constructions and analysis, mm. um, and, um, in, in his, really his latest papers, um, you know, he talks about, um, going beyond, uh, the bedrock of castration, um, and, um, uh, as a final goal of analysis and um, uh, a very complicated idea, of course. Yes. And uh, and what he seemed to be uh, uh, saying to the best, uh, to the best of my understanding, is that it's something we can hope for, but it's not necessarily something that he felt he brought the majority of his patients to do. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, he, 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 I think he felt that in the best of cases, he could bring them to the point where they could um, somehow uh, be faced with uh, what castration involves, what it's about, whether they would go beyond the position that um, they were in uh, with respect to castration or not, was one of those um, undecidables, um, and uh, might might happen in some cases, might not. Mm. Um, and um, Lacan, similarly, I think you know, felt that um, well, let's say, conceptualized what the goal of analysis was in a number of different ways over the course of time, um, and. One of the ways that I like they came up with, of course, quite late in life after having, you know, tortured us with various formulations like the traversing of fantasy and so mm-hmm. on, was, you know, when the analysis is happy to be alive, the analysis <laughs> has gone far enough. Okay. Right? <laughs> so, I, you know, uh, yeah. now, you know, some people poo-poo that one too, but, you know, um, everyone has their own formulations yeah. that they like and, um, yeah. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you? So what? What about you? What do you think? Um, I particularly like that formulation of Lacan's. <laughs> uh, um, the, the latter, uh, the latest one. <laughs> the the late. Well, I don't know if it's the latest one. There might yeah. have been other ones after that in the later seventies as well. But um, mm. um, obviously, you know, I agree with Freud that there has to be, you know, a considerable transformation at the level of the unconscious. That an awful lot of what was unconscious and that was leading to symptom formation has not necessarily become conscious, but has been worked through, has been talked over and over, has been brought into speech and, and um, articulated in a whole variety of ways, mm-hmm. such that it just doesn't operate in the same way. And um, it seems, you know, one difference, again, between Freud and Lacan would be that Freud seemed to hold out the idea that Virtually every symptom, um, especially neurotic symptom that someone might uh, present us with, can be resolved in the course of the analysis. And I think Lacan believed that as well. And Lacan, in his early work, talked about how um, symptoms were resolved or uh, dissipated or liquidated somehow through speech by speaking, uh, by speaking to another person. And then later on, um, I think he came to uh, the notion that, well, not all symptoms can be liquidated, completely dissipated. He talked about, came up with a number of other Mm. formulations that we won't go into here, I don't think, since that's not our main purpose, but, um, Mm. you know, that, um, that, uh, the analysis can take up a different position with respect to the symptom than uh, he or she had taken up before. Right. The stance can be different, that it, they don't necessarily suffer from it in the same way as they had before. Uh, the symptom doesn't entirely disappear, but it is nevertheless impacted and changes to some degree. Then he had another formulation, which was uh, goes so far as to, to talk about identification with the symptom. Mm-hmm. And so uh, another complex notion, but um, where I think each of them over the course of their career comes uh, perhaps is very optimistic at the outset about um, <laughs> how much analysis can uh, accomplish and become perhaps more realistic or a little bit more pessimistic about the limits of uh, analysis uh, later on. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Actually, you know, toward, toward the end of the book, I noticed you started, you did engage Lacanians a bit. And, um, for example, when you mentioned Verhaga's revival of Freud's actual neurosis, this mm-hmm. term, and, and though Verhaga, I mean, means something different by it, because for him, it's, uh, if I understand him correctly, it's actual neurosis is a form actually of localized psychosis. It's almost like a symptom in the body that is a dumb symptom that, doesn't speak or can't be interpreted. Um, but I, I don't know if that's correct. But what do you think of this and of Freud's concept and this kind of the way that certain Freudian notions are being revived and, and kind of transformed today? Well, uh, let's say that uh, what 
what Paul Verhaga has done is in the grand Lacanian tradition of taking a concept found or like a term found in Freud's work and um, using it for his own purposes. Um, so, for example, I found it quite confusing when I first read what Paul was doing with the notion of actual neurosis, because in Freud's work, it isn't really a neurosis. Today, we right. wouldn't talk yeah. about it as a neurosis. For Freud, our neurosis was just sort of any kind of nervous problem, any kind of nervous condition. And uh, for Freud, as you're aware, the, um, uh, uh, an actual neurosis was something that looked like a neurosis, and so which one thought had psychosomatic causes, but which turned out to be related to something the person was actually or rather currently doing, <laughs> like working too hard or engaging in something which mm, I don't think anybody really engages in much anymore, coitus interruptus, mm. and uh, leading to a kind of, you know, a situation either of overwork and what today is called burnout um, mm. or to some sort of nervous condition, a kind of incredible buildup of tension. But the notion was that it wasn't psychosomatic in the sense that as soon as the practice stopped, as soon as one stopped overworking or one uh, stopped engaging in coitus interruptus, the, what looked like a psychosomatic symptom actually disappeared. Mm. which suggested that there was no unconscious underpinning there, right? There was no conflict in a conflict model. There was no unconscious wish that was somehow holding the symptom in place. As soon as you stopped overworking, right, the, the, the nervous condition went away. So what um, Paul Verhaga has done then is to take that term and try to do something quite different with it. Uh, I'm not as very, it sounds like you're quite versed in what he uh, does with it. Um, uh, I am. I've read an uh, article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, uh, it's up to you whether you're uh, convinced that it's a useful um, uh, new concept. Um, and then perhaps it's justified to um, uh, take an old term and uh, give it a new uh, meaning. Um, but personally, I find that a bit confusing as uh, mm. something, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And um, but um, I mean, it, it seems that there is there is an effort to kind of explain new maladies or what are perceived to be new maladies and, and or, you know, um, working and also new ways of working with psychosis, maybe like the, um, the malarian concept of, I actually mm -hmm. wonder what you think about, cause you do, I think you mentioned it maybe even in a footnote, but I'm interested mm -hmm. in what you think about ordinary psychosis. Cause I mean, I mean, is, did you think that it comes out of Freud at all or, or is it this a totally, can we diagnose Anna O for example, with like, or is this, um, I mean, I don't know. To be more serious, it seems to me that, you know, at the end of the day, ordinary psychosis is psychosis. It's just a clinical, it's more of a clinical guide, a way right. of recognizing psychotic structure when it's not, you know, obvious or apparent. But, exactly. Oh, okay. I, I, I agree completely with that. Okay. Um, oh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> but just to return to, yeah. you know, what, what uh, Paul is trying to do, for example, mm. with actual neurosis, I agree that there's an attempt to try to locate um, 
what is going on in cases that uh, in the past people would have said, well, um, you know, psych, uh, psychoanalysis is contraindicated or uh, cases in which no matter how much uh, talking went on, nothing seemed to happen. And um, so I think what Paul's trying to do is to formulate, well, what sort of psychological situation uh, leads to something where there's no movement, where uh, people are stuck, um, where yes. mm-hmm. uh, nothing seems to, no matter what gets formulated, no matter who formulates it, um, there's no real movement. And and that's, um, I think, uh, certainly a positive development. And I think the, the notion of ordinary psychosis is connected to that in a way. First, I think Freud would never have recognized ordinary psychosis because I think he already had a tr- uh, you know trouble recognizing um, you know fairly traditional psychosis. If we take the rat, uh, not the rat man, but rather the wolf man as um, as a guide, um, uh, perhaps if the wolf man had. Uh, come to Freud in the midst of a psychotic break, there would have been no problem there. And yet I think, again, Freud didn't necessarily have another method, a different method of working with somebody in the midst of a psychotic break than he had with his neurotic patients. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, the notion of ordinary psychosis, I think, is simply a recognition of um, what Lacan points out early on in his work, for example, in Seminar 3, that um, psychosis is usually triggered at a certain point. In other words, there's a psychotic break that occurs, um, which suggests that prior to the break, the person might be talked about as pre-psychotics. And in fact, that was the term that was used in uh, up until the 1950s, apparently in France, that certain people were pre-psychotics. Now, perhaps it was only diagnosed after the psychotic break had occurred. <laughs> so um, uh, it wasn't necessarily that useful to clinicians trying to work with those people. Um, but um, what Malaire adds is that a psychotic break may never occur. That, in other words, there may be a pre-psychotic in whom um, um, we can see certain psychotic features, um, uh, but in whom uh, that who never experience a break, whether that's by luck or for some other reason, uh, is not always clear. But such people are often referred to today as resistant, treatment resistant. They yeah. have concrete thinking. And again, no matter how much the analyst tries to interpret, they don't necessarily change. They don't take on board those interpretations. Um, uh, so um, it seems to me that um, it's a helpful category because it, it, it for me, especially since I make a, a very big distinction uh, in treatment methodology between neurotics and psychotics, it um, it alerts us to the fact that you know certain people who don't make slips of the tongue or who you know make them only very occasionally and never seem to catch on 
uh, never find them funny, never find them significant, or never able to do any creative work with them, that the unconscious in them does not operate in the same way as, as it does in um, in neurotics. And there's no point trying to work with it in the same way that one does with neurotics. And that, in fact, continually trying to point out to someone that maybe there's something going on that they're not aware of uh, may produce a psychotic break when there wasn't one. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very helpful category in that regard um, that, you know, it alerts the clinician to potential trouble um, Mm -hmm. or, or trouble that they could potentially create themselves by pushing too hard in any particular direction. Um, right, and and um, and and speaking of sort of uh, yeah structures, diagnostic categories, etc. What about phobia? Uh, you mentioned phobia as well. Only at the end, you you kind of avoid. <laughs> I mean, you, you you explain why you didn't do Little Hans, which I understand it's not a real mm-hmm. case, but still. Mm-hmm. Like, Actually, Lacan really re- rethinks that whole case. Uh, well, whatever it is, he rethinks yeah. Little Hans. He rereads him yeah. completely, but. You know, what do you make of this? Because I, you know, I have trouble understanding phobia as a form of, as a kind of structure, you know. And I was wondering if you think it, in fact, is a structure or is it just a, a symptom or... It seems difficult for me, I don't know, it's difficult for me to think of it as a structure. Yeah, I am... Do you I, encounter um, it in your, in your clinic? Oh, I do. Yes, uh, I do. Uh-huh. And, um, but... You know, very often it looks like part of a broader structure, let's say, of hysteria. Mm. What we find, we find a lot of phobias early in people's lives, uh, which are passing often. You know, they don't, uh, they don't necessarily last beyond, um, long beyond childhood. Um, and so it seems that it's uh, a phobia is often just one, uh, one neurotic symptom among many. Um, but, uh, there are cases of lifelong phobia and, uh, Lacan came around to talking about those as what he thought of as the, let's say the most radical form of neurosis in the sense that it's closest to, uh, they're not being the name of the father or they're not being a button tie. They're not being some sort of anchoring point for the subject. And so it's as if it's almost the worst case scenario of neurosis. And in that case, perhaps mm-hmm. the hardest to treat. Um, but, um, Freud himself, I think, just considered it to be, you know, uh, a symptom among others, and um, perhaps if he, you know, he would have included it under the psychoneuroses, um, uh, or, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know of anyone who's really worked so extensively with um, with phobias to come up with a fundamentally different um, structure for it, let's say, from uh, the way they formulate obsession and hysteria. Mm. So uh, your sense about it is that it's not a separate structure? Yeah, well, I I think that I, I was never totally convinced by it as a separate structure. I wasn't sure how I would then, if I encountered, even if I were to kind of um, delineate it, 
or if I were to recognize it in a patient, how I would then approach the patient differently. You know, what would be the kind of direction of the treatment? Um, right. Yeah. So I was I was curious, and you know, I I'm, I'm on the fence, I guess. <laughs> about right. It. Um, yeah. 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 Certainly, my sense about it is that it's one of the neuroses, whether we consider it to be a thoroughly separate one from mm. hysteria or obsession. Uh, I, I wouldn't be so sure about that. But in terms of the approach to working with it, I think it's very much um, like the other neuroses. So, mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Well, as as is customary at the um, the New Books Network, I will end. We're going to end soon, and I want to ask you before we go uh, what you're working on now. Um, what I'm working on now, <laughs> I am uh, deep into the translation of Seminar Six, which is called oh. Desire and its Interpretation. Um, so, uh, and this is, I believe, the longest seminar of Lacan's. <laughs> it's 600 pages. Wow. So um, that's uh, that's. Um, you sound thrilled about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, to be quite honest, it's one of the early ones, and I'm not quite as interested in it as the later ones. But mm-hmm. I made a deal with a publisher that I would do an early one in, and they are promising me two later ones. So, um, you know, I'm doing my best to keep my interest. Up and uh, there's a long, uh, a long section in there. There's seven or eight classes devoted to Hamlet, uh, which can be amusing and infuriating and so mm. on. But there's a great deal actually on the interpretation of dreams, and uh, so the whole first section is actually on the interpretation of dreams. And um, okay. I, I actually found that quite useful for working on the Freud book. And uh, the other thing I'm Toying with at this point will be another Inspector Canal uh, story mm-hmm. to be tentatively <laughs> entitled The Da Vinci Staircase, oh. and which will make fun of the Da Vinci Code, of course, uh-huh. in so many ways because of all its absurdities, but um, hmm. at least once I was able to detect and uh, also to just integrate certain of the lovely uh, architectural things here in France and certain castles. Mm. So that uh, that's more a fun project. And that is more on the back burner than on the front burner right now. Mm. But, uh, well, I look forward to <laughs> both, but I, I don't know. I just, I love your translation, so I can't wait. <laughs> You're going to make seminar six really interesting um, or accessible. Uh, I hope so. Right, <laughs> accessible at least. Let's hope. Right. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, anyway, um, thank you very much. Uh, you know, for doing this yet again. I've been talking to. Bruce Fink about his book, A Clinical Introduction to Freud, Techniques for Everyday Practice. Um, Thanks again, Bruce. Thank you so much, Anna, for taking the time to read the book and for uh, preparing questions for me. It's always Uh a pleasure to talk with you. You too. And, And thanks to our audience for listening. Until next time. So long.